You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So about 700 years before this text in Isaiah 35 was written, the people of Israel found themselves after 40 years of sojourning in the wilderness, after fleeing from Egypt, they found themselves in a situation where God raised up a man named Joshua. And Joshua's role was to lead the people of Israel into the land of promise. And God had a famous refrain that he said to Joshua in the first chapter of the book of Joshua, before the people of Israel went into the land that they had long anticipated, the Lord said this to his servant. He said, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And so Joshua did as the Lord said, and he led his people Israel into the promised land. And he was strong and he was very courageous. And God was faithful. He gave them a land of prosperity and safety and abundance, but the people of Israel, they weren't as strong or as courageous, and they didn't do all the law that Moses commanded them, like the Lord told them to. And so, 700 years later, the prophet Isaiah finds himself speaking to a rebellious Israel rather than an obedient one, and an Israel that is on the brink of being exiled out of the land that their forefathers inherited. Rather than dwelling joyfully in the land, they're being exiled by foreign nations back into the wilderness. Rather than obeying God as they were commanded, they were disobedient. Rather than being strong and courageous, they found themselves seeking protection from their historic enemy in Egypt. And so this is the time that Isaiah is writing in. He's writing to a disobedient Israel, and he's leading them into a situation. He's he's encouraging them in the midst of this situation where they're going to be somewhat like their fathers were in Egypt. They're going to be crushed by a violent enemy. They're going to be removed from their homes. They're going to be forced to serve a foreign king who does not care for them. And so Isaiah is telling them that that even though all of this is coming, God's righteous judgment is also coming. It's coming for Israel in the form of exile, but it's also coming for the nations that oppress Israel. And the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are really just a repeated refrain of Isaiah warning Israel of judgment and encouraging them with the hope of God's promises. Judgment and hope, judgment and hope. And in our first week of the Advent series, we looked at Isaiah chapter 2 and Reed preached about a new Jerusalem. This hopeful message to a people whose city was going to be destroyed, that there would be a new Jerusalem. And in that new Jerusalem, one day, 
peace and righteousness would go forth and all the nations would come to worship Yahweh. And last week in chapter 11, Marshall told us that Israel was on the verge of being hewn like a a forest cut down to stumps. Judgment. But the hope in the midst of this judgment was that one day from, from this stump of Israel, a shoot would rise up in the form of a great king. A king who would begin to establish a new garden like Nick was talking about in the midst of all the desolation around them. So from slavery and exile, there's going to come an even greater redemption for the people of Israel. Even more hope than they ever thought they could have. God's establishing something beautiful even though the people of Israel are experiencing such great sorrow, such deep anxiety, such real oppression. Jerusalem may be destroyed, Israel may be divided and seemingly conquered, but Isaiah promises the people that God has a plan. Today we're in Isaiah chapter 35, and if we went back one chapter to to chapter 34, we would read the prophet writing a poem about God's coming final judgment on the wicked. And, and this picture is, is dark. It's a bloody picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of the curse that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 being multiplied over and over so that thorns and thistles overtake all the wicked nations who oppress God's people. Fire and wild animals will consume the wicked. And in chapter 35, where we find ourselves today, Isaiah writes another poem. And it's a poem about God's coming redemption for Israel. For this exiled and beaten down people. This homeless nation full of sorrow. And the poem is a direct response to the previous poem about God's judgment. Judgment and hope. Isaiah 35 is unquestionably a poem of hope. And it begins like this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Whereas the wicked nations in chapter 34 seemed fruitful but became a desolate wilderness, quenched of water, destroyed by fire, overrun with wild animals, with thorns and thistles, God's exiled people in the wilderness will go from being desert-like to having the full effects of the curse reversed. There'll be a glorious garden The flowers and the mountains will sing for joy for the people of God and for the redemption of God. Flowers are blooming. The landscape is singing as she sees God's glory. And in verses 3 and 4, the prophet turns from addressing the created order to addressing the people of God. The people of God in the midst of oppression and exile. And this is what he says. Strengthen the weak hands. 
and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Isaiah addresses Israel and he calls them to be strong in their labor even though their hands are very weak. He calls them to stand up with stability and with confidence even though their legs have been cut out from beneath them and their knees are feeble. He calls them to trust in the Lord with confidence and with conviction in their hearts even though those same hearts are full of doubt and fear and anxiety and sorrow. And then he tells the people of Israel something that their ancestor Joshua told their ancestors 700 years before. He tells them to be strong and courageous, saying, be strong and fear not, because God is going to give you victory and justice and salvation just like he's given it to our forefathers over and over and over again, and he is going to do it again, but even better. As many of us approach the the end of the year, uh, we find ourselves in, uh, whether it's alone in our journals or maybe with, with groups of people, maybe in our neighborhood parishes, reflecting on the year behind. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that. I think it's a healthy exercise. But if you're anything like me, you, you look back on 2019 and, and just want to bid it good riddance. Um, for me, if ever there was a year in my life in which I felt that my hands were weak and my knees were feeble and my heart was anxious, it was this year. If there was ever a year where I have not felt strong or courageous, it was 2019. If there's ever a year in which I found it difficult to trust that the Lord is doing good things in my life, it was this year. And after a year like this, or or any difficult season, sometimes even after just one really bad day, it's easy to believe that our efforts are meaningless. Can can I really make a difference? Does it really matter if I work hard? engage my neighbors with love, or seek the welfare of the city around me. I'm just one man with weak hands and feeble knees and an anxious heart. It's easy to believe that our lack of individual stability is totally overwhelming. If I feel like a wreck and I'm worried about tomorrow, how can I be strong and courageous? How can I be strong and courageous in trusting the Lord's promises when I feel like He's just left me in the wilderness to suffer? How can I be strong and courageous in trusting in the Lord when I'm constantly waiting for the next shoe to drop? And here's what I know. I know I'm not alone. I know this congregation very well, and we're an anxious people. I've had countless conversations with many of you in this room year after year, week after week about anxiety and depression and feeling unable to change our situation and being overwhelmed by the amount of things we have on our schedules and difficult relationships and illness and family trouble. 
We're often a people with feeble knees and with weak hands. And even if you as an individual aren't, so many in your neighborhood parish and in your congregation are, and if we are a people who are family, then then we have to admit that we're a weak-handed, feeble-knees, anxious family. So, So what do we do? Well, there's good news in the Advent season for a family with weak knees and a family with anxious hearts, a family with weak hands. See, right after the prophet calls us to be like Joshua, to be strong and courageous, he says something. He says, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come to save you. And on face value, when we read this poetry in Isaiah that was written in Hebrew and now is in English and has all the English punctuation The the words seem like a simple promise of hope and a call to encouragement. It seems like all that the prophet is saying is say to those with an anxious heart, Behold, your God will come. But the words, Behold, your God, are a line of their own in the poem. And they're sandwiched right between anxious hearts and promises of God's salvation. So so what the prophet is doing with this poem is something that he couldn't do in simple prose. He's used the words, behold your God, to mean two different things. We're not just supposed to behold the promise of our God's salvation, but the prophet is telling us that the very remedy to our sad and anxious and weak hearts is to behold our God. Say to those with an anxious heart, behold your God. Gaze upon Him with hope. Look at Him and sing like the crocus blooming in the desert. If you're anxious, just look at your God. Look at your God who is coming to save you. We'll read it like this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees and say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God. Or we could read it like this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees and say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. And in the same verse, there are two really good messages of good news. One is the remedy for anxiety, which is to gaze upon our Lord, and one is the reason for hope which is that He is coming to save us. Isaiah is promising exiled Israel that God is going to deliver them. But how is it that that they will know when He has finally come to do that? How will they know when their time of suffering is ending? How will they know when they are no longer in exile, no longer to suffer? Well, the poem continues in verses 5 through 7 by 
by giving us some things to look for, some things that are going to take place when God does come to save us. The first thing is that the eyes of the blind will be opened. When God comes to save, the second thing is that the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The third thing that will happen when God comes to save is is that the lame man will leap like a deer. The fourth thing that will happen is that the tongue of the mute will begin to sing for joy. The fifth thing that will happen when God comes to save is that water will break forth in the wilderness. The sixth thing that's going to happen, the prophet tells us, when God comes to save is that fruitfulness will come to a land full of predators. That that no more will will the oppressors of God's people have the victory. And the seventh thing is that there will be a highway for God's people when God comes to save them. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will begin to sing for joy, water breaking forth in the wilderness, fruitfulness coming to a land full of predators. This sounds a lot like the earthly ministry of Jesus. After all, Jesus healed a man born blind. He called a lame man to pick up his mat and begin to walk. He unstopped the ears of the deaf. He gave voice to a mute man who was tortured by demons. And he said that he had water to drink that would satisfy, such that no one who had it would ever thirst again, though they are in the wilderness. And he established a new people, out of Israel, overrun with Roman predators, to go forth fruitfully making disciples of all nations. So church, today, if you feel anxious and weak, we can look upon the ministry of Jesus and and say verses 3 and 4 like this, Be strong, fear not, behold your God has come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He has come to save you. Though Israel longed for the day that God would come, we can look back on the day that He did and rejoice. We can have hope only because our God has come to save us in judgment. He has done this just as Isaiah said He would, through judgment and through hope. In Jesus' ministry, he didn't only open the eyes of the blind or give voice to the mute or open the ears of the deaf, but he also bore the judgment of the nations upon his cross. He was sacrificed, having the curse of Adam come upon him fully. See, Jesus didn't just fulfill Isaiah 35, he fulfilled Isaiah 34, a picture that we said was bloody, full of sacrifice, that was full of the curse of Adam overrunning the wickedness of the nations. Well, if thorns and thistles are the curse of Adam, then Jesus wore them as a crown. And God's righteous judgment of sin was placed upon him to the point of death. So that means, church, that that we, as a family, this Advent season can gaze upon the one who bore the bloody guilt of our sin, the one who brought joy in the midst of our sorrow. We can gaze upon the one 
who established a beautiful reality that even though at times life feels unrelenting and it feels painful, that God with us has come in Emmanuel. He's come for us and he's made us part of his redeemed family. We can behold the one who has conquered death even though we at times feel conquered by life. We can behold the one who's given us a better story than the exiles of Israel. The one who, though we often fail to trust him and to see his grace, has provided us with everything that we need. Full of grace and truth and justice. And the text doesn't even end there. It goes on beginning in verse 8 and it says, And the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away from them. 2,000 years ago when Jesus made his first advent among us, he had a conversation with his disciples in the 14th chapter of John in which he told them about the new Jerusalem that we read about in Isaiah chapter 2. He called it his father's house. And he told his disciples that he was going to prepare rooms for them. And that one day he would return and take his disciples to that new Jerusalem. He told them that they knew the way to this Jerusalem. But they said they weren't so sure that they did. And then Jesus said something to them that that has been repeated thousands upon thousands of times since. When they asked where this new Jerusalem was, he didn't give them directions. He didn't draw on the map. He just said this, I am the way. I am the way. The truth and the life. Church, Jesus is the highway in Isaiah chapter 35, leading us to a new creation. He departed to the cross and to the grave so that he could prepare us room in the new city. He rose victoriously from death, inaugurating the renewal of all things. Reversing the death of Adam's sin and establishing an altogether new creation that he is building day by day through his people. He's currently ascended at the right hand of the Father, cheering us on and strengthening us and praying for us as we make our way along the highway of our God toward a better dwelling place than this sinful world. And along the way, though we often feel defeated, though the text tells us that we might have anxious hearts and feeble knees, it also promises us that we'll be protected from predators. Along the way, though we often feel discouraged, we can identify 
ourselves as the ransomed and redeemed and beloved ones of God. Along the way, though the world around us and the circumstances of life often feel tainted with death, we can take part and celebrate the sprouts of new life in a world being renewed by the power of God's Son resurrecting from the dead. The Apostle Peter understood this well. He knew that the salvation of Jesus fulfilled all these things that the prophet Isaiah is telling us about. And he knew that even though the ministry of Jesus establishes new life and gives us reason for hope and crushes our guilt and our sin, that we would still be a suffering people. And so he said in the first chapter of 1 Peter 1, talking about our salvation and our inheritance that will be revealed in the last times, in the advent of Jesus that we still long for and hope for and anticipate, he said this, in this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Saying, church, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This Advent season, church, we can enter the highway of the Lord, made clean by the blood of the cross with the strong hand of God guiding us, though our hands are weak with the firm knees of a king upholding us, though ours shake and tremble, with the fearless heart of a savior empowering us and convicting us, though ours are anxious and tired. We can leave our anxiety at the feet of the one who has come to save us, knowing that he will come again. And when he does, all the work that he has begun in us and in the world around us will be finished. And so just like the people of God in Isaiah chapter 35, we can sing songs of joy and praise as we march confidently toward a new creation. Not because our circumstances necessarily demand it, but because the grace and salvation of God demands it. We can march confidently toward this new creation, knowing that the God who has redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt redeemed his people from exile in Babylon, redeemed his people from the powers of Satan and sin and death, will be faithful to keep us all along the way. So I say this to myself and to you. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God. He has come for you. Behold your God. He has died for you. Behold your God. He currently pleads for you. Behold your God. He 
regularly and at all times delights in you. And He's making you and your neighbors and this city and all of creation new in accordance with His steadfast love. Behold your God because He is the way to our Father's house. So let us make our way toward that final destination, day by day, week by week, hour by hour, singing and rejoicing, even when our hearts are full of sorrow, even when our minds are full of fear, because we are preparing for, and we are cheering on, and we are ushering in the second coming of our Lord, and in that day, our heads will no longer be crowned with mourning, but they will be crowned with everlasting joy. And in that day, we will obtain gladness and joy and all sorrow and all sighing will flee away. And so church, if you do nothing else this Advent season, behold your God, Jesus Christ, our Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, would you turn our hearts to behold you. Would you turn our hearts to behold the glories of the redemption you've purchased for us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? Would you turn our hearts to understand and celebrate and cheer on the fact that though at times we feel battered, beaten, and bruised, that you've made us new, that you've called us beloved, that you cheer us on and delight in us daily? Lord, would you take anxiety from us and let us trust you more? Would you be strong in the midst of our weakness? And would you use us to be a people who sing and dance and rejoice all along the way, inviting more and more to enter the highway of holiness through the work of Jesus that the new creation may come quickly? Lord, we anticipate and long for your return when all things will be made new. And we ask, Lord, would you not tarry? Would you come quickly, Lord? We thank you that you've come once, and we beg that you would come again soon. But until that day, would you give us joy and gladness, though we weep and moan, because you have come you've saved us, and you love us, then would you empower us by your spirit to be a people who understand that and celebrate it? Would we be a sprout of new life in this city that we see multiply and multiply until Houston is part of the new creation, fully engrafted in your love and your grace? We ask these things in the name of Jesus, who has conquered and given us victory.